Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines, gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Element Group is a full-service advisory firm for the digital asset capital markets. Element delivers crypto economics, financing, and strategy advisory services for the industry's leading projects. To learn more about Element and receive exclusive research on digital assets, visit www.elementgroup.com slash unconfirmed. My guest today is Joey Krug, co-founder of Augur and chief investment officer at Pantera Capital. Welcome, Joey. Thanks for having me. Before the show, you mentioned that you have some updates on Augur. What's the latest? Yeah, so the latest is it's currently in a bug bounty program phase. Uh, all the security audits are, are complete, and it's actually going to go live on the Ethereum mainnet on July 9th. Oh, that's great. And so at that point, do you have some, I guess, prediction markets that you're going to kind of seed it with? Yeah, so we're, we ourselves aren't going to seed it with anything. It's, it's really just kind of open to the community at that point. You know, I'm sure people will create markets on things like political events, uh, you know, as well as, you know, just some people who want to create security markets, uh, things like, you know, will uh, certain vulnerabilities be found in the Augur code base, things like that. Oh, yeah. What are you doing in your last weeks before launch to to try to to make sure that those prediction markets don't fail or don't come true? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, um, you know, what we've been doing recently is just really focusing on fixing any little bugs left, primarily things on the user interface, uh, as well as, you know, any, any little things that might be a potential issue on the contracts uh, we've been fixing. And then the contracts are undergoing a kind of final slate of audits uh, over the next couple of weeks by Zeppelin, just to give them a final pass before launch. Yeah. And as you know, I'm sure you've seen in the news, bugs are before launch or even after launch are are in the news right now with EOS. So hopefully, hopefully you'll be getting all the bug reports that you need. So what else has been on your mind? Recently, I've been thinking a lot about uh, kind of the idea of currency and cryptocurrencies, uh, as well as like scalability and, and throughput. And what are your thoughts on currency? Basically, so basically, what I'm thinking about recently is kind of this idea that if you look at most cryptocurrencies today, they kind of fall into one or two buckets, which is you have cryptocurrencies where uh, they have a supply curve that kind of drifts off in kind of very steep chunks. So an example of this is Bitcoin. You know, most people are aware that Bitcoin's supply curve every four years, the amount of Bitcoin that are minted each block halves. And eventually it tapers off until, you know, there's 21 million and that's it. Uh, so it's kind of a very libertarian idea. You have a finite supply and it's essentially in the end state, a deflationary currency. The other idea we've seen a lot of are stable coins, uh, which I think are really interesting. There are attempts to make cryptocurrencies that are you know, stable and pegged to some other asset, typically the dollar um, or a basket of other currencies. What I think is really interesting that we haven't seen yet, though, would be a cryptocurrency that aims to be more just like a regular currency. So if you look at the history of currencies globally, 
you know, for the past 50, 60 years, most currencies that have actually tried to maintain a peg have actually ended up failing because hedge funds have, have broken the pegs. You know, Dan at, at Pantera Capital actually was part of the, the, one of the fund managers that pushed the Thai bot over the edge in the 90s. And so there's not a huge reason to believe that stablecoin pegs can't be broken either. So what I think is what I think is interesting is kind of this idea of what if you made a cryptocurrency that was much more like how the way regular currencies work in the real world, but also had all the benefits of a cryptocurrency. The only difference would be the supply issuance curve. That's interesting what you said about Dan and the Thai bot, because I was living in Indonesia at the time, and I definitely have very, very, very vivid memories of the Asian economic flu. So why is it that you think we haven't seen projects that are trying to mimic a regular currency? Yeah, so I think, you know, one, one reason is it's kind of an idea that's, it's so simple in hindsight that, but nobody's actually done it yet. It's kind of one, one of those interesting ideas. And I think so far, you know, this space, a lot of the people in it have been pretty libertarian focused, um, you know, gold bugs or, or what I would call digital gold bugs. And so an idea like this might not necessarily appeal to them. But if you actually examine the things that they don't like about inflationary currencies, it's that inflation is basically a silent tax. So if the amount of money supply goes up by 2% each year and you're just kind of saving your money under your bed, every year you're basically losing you know, 2% in value. However, though, what you can do differently with cryptocurrencies is you could actually distribute the inflation to other people in the network. So I think what's interesting is having inflation isn't necessarily a bad thing like it is, say, to these to these groups of people in the regular world. And when you say distribute the inflation to certain people in the network, is that like some of these ideas around if a group of developers wants to propose an improvement to a network, then they can be rewarded with new tokens, which would inflate the supply, but presumably people who own those tokens would think it would it would be worth it to get that improvement. Is that what you're talking about? So that's one mechanism that you could distribute the inflation with. The idea here, though, basically is, you know, imagine you had um, some cryptocurrency that was being used for transacting and it you know wasn't trying to maintain a peg. It was just trying to be kind of much more like a regular currency. So trying to maintain some sort of price level trying to not be super volatile. Those are the sorts of characteristics you want in a currency. And if the price is going up, uh, you generally want to increase the supply of the currency. And if the price is going down, you kind of want to encourage people to basically hoard it so that you know velocity is not, not going drastically up. And uh, one way to distribute it would be to give it to developers who are adding new features. Other ways would be to give it to people who say, say you let the users of the network vote on what the inflation rate should be um, and distribute, distribute it to the people who actually voted. Oh, this is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess, so the one project that comes to mind that, and actually I'm sure there are others, uh, that are styled the same way, but Basecoin, which has a new name and I'm just blanking on it. What, what did they call themselves now? Uh, basis. Oh, right. Basis. The way that they're structured is somewhat similar where they have these different groups on either side. And, you know, when they're wanting to, to kind of tamp down inflation, they incentivize one group. And then when they want to, I guess, incentivize the opposite, then they incentivize this other group. But that's all pegged to the dollar. And so you're saying, do the same thing, but but then what? But not be pegged to the dollar? Then how, how would you kind of keep the, the price stable? Yeah. So you know, in, in monetary policy, there's this idea called the impossible trinity. Basically, it says that you can kind of pick two of the three. And the three options are independent monetary policy, 
a peg or kind of free trade or, or open capital flows. And um, in cryptocurrency, you're, you're always going to have, for the most part, ignoring kind of like permission chains, you're going to have free capital flows. So that one you can't really compromise on. The other two are, you know, maintaining an independent monetary policy or a peg. And so far, most stablecoin projects have chosen the peg side of the trinity. And I think what would be interesting is if you, you chose the other side, which is maintain an independent monetary policy. And so what that means is with a peg, you kind of follow a very rigid formula. Um, but with an independent monetary policy, you can make decisions that are kind of much more subjective. And subjectivity can be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing. But if you look at how, you know, say the Fed operates, they have flexibility uh, when they're making decisions versus something like Basecoin is, is very algorithmic. And so what the, what the kind of idea here is basically, if you take a peg, you can kind of always kill it because, or at least in theory, you can always break the peg because if there's not enough capital reserves backing it, uh, a hedge fund can come in and, and you know short the currency and, and cause your peg to break. That's happened tons of times throughout the history of currency. But with currencies that don't maintain pegs, they can definitely go down in value, but it's harder. To, there's no like one moment where it's clearly broken. Uh, it's kind of like the the kind of classic Game of Thrones sort of what is dead may never die sort of thing. So to have an independent monetary policy in a decentralized network, would a certain group be empowered to do that? Or how could you do that in a decentralized fashion? Yeah, so this is probably the hardest part of if you were to actually do this. And I think, you know, on, on the independent monetary policy side, one option is, you know, you, you have everything everything on the spectrum of, from pure democracy to kind of pure dictatorship, right? And um, on the pure democracy side, the idea would be, you know, everyone in the network has a vote and you vote on what you think basically the inflation rate or what interest rates should be uh, over any given time period. The complete opposite side is, you know, somebody's appointed from the beginning and they decide that. In the middle, you could have things like a delegative democracy where people elect uh, people that they consider experts to vote on their behalf and decide it. I think something like in the middle is probably what what makes the most sense because uh, you want people who actually understand the economics behind it and who can make an informed decision that would outperform using, say, a rigid equation uh, is kind of the idea here. Yeah, I agree on having people who are informed do the voting because sometimes as a California resident where I'm asked to vote on these referendums and I don't know anything about them. I'm like, why are you asking me? But I wanted to also find out, are there any projects that are working on on this problem or that are structured in this way? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of projects that I think are, are kind of, you know, a, approaching this problem from interesting angles like that. The ones I'm aware of aren't really public yet. Okay. Well, I guess we'll still stay tuned. So we'll also uh, move on to talk about scalability in a moment. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Element Group is a full-service advisory firm for the digital asset capital markets. Element delivers crypto economics, financing, and strategy advisory services for the industry's leading projects. Element's goal is to focus on clients in an integrative manner by offering all services a crypto-enabled company requires throughout its life cycle, such as corporate finance, asset management, OTC trading, treasury solutions, and technology services. To learn more about Element and receive exclusive research on digital assets, visit www.elementgroup.com slash unconfirmed. I'm speaking with Joey Krug of Augur and Pantera Capital. So you, you also mentioned that you've been thinking about scalability. What about it? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think the, the thing with scalability is uh, we've kind of realized that in, in the cryptocurrency space today, it's really the main thing holding things back, in my opinion. 
for a while, I always said the two main things holding things back are, you know, lack of a stable coin and uh, scalability and throughput. And with Maker and Basecoin and all these projects, we're finally going to have some stable coins that exist in the wild. But throughput and scalability is a very unsolved problem. If you take, you know, Augur as an example, the version that launches on July 9th, it's going to be pretty slow. You know, you're limited to a maximum of around 10 transactions per second on Ethereum. And additionally, your fees are going to be pretty high. Uh, if it costs you, you know, $3 to, to place a trade on Augur, that's not, you know, something that's sustainable or, or competitive long term. So I think for this space to really take off, we need to solve these scalability challenges. And recently, I've seen a lot of projects that I think are pretty interesting that are actually making quite a bit of, of progress on that on that angle. So that's that's why I'm excited about it. What are their approaches? So there's there's some approaches that we've seen where so if you look at scalability, there's kind of like you can bifurcate everything into you know the underlying blockchain layer or kind of layer two uh, stuff like Lightning. On layer two, I, I used to not be very uh, excited about it because it had this problem called the routing problem, which is a how do you route uh, payments through a network? And the way to think about it is if you're downloading files on the internet, say your connection is like a uh, 100 megabits per second connection and you download a file. Once you're done downloading it, your connection is still a 100 megabits per second connection. But in a payment network, it's different. If I route a payment through you, your balance changes. And so that what's called the kind of channel capacity or basically your bandwidth, in other words, actually changes. And so it makes it makes this problem of how do you route payments through a network in an efficient way uh, much more difficult. And the reason why this problem is important to solve is if you think about routing payments, you want to have the minimum kind of collateral required requirements possible. If to route a $5 payment, it requires $50 in capital locked up throughout the network, uh, that's not very good because it's basically wasting and locking up a lot of capital unnecessarily. And so if you solve this routing problem, you reduce the capital requirements quite drastically. And so there's some projects, one's called uh, Seller, which which claims to have a solution to this. There's also another project called um, Counterfactual, uh, which I think Ethereum or, or Vitalik gave a grant to uh, that's working on similar problems. And how do they work? So what's what's interesting about them is if you look at state channels or payment channels, they've been possible for quite a few years now, but no one's really built anything using them at any any kind of level of scale. I think the reason is they're really hard for developers to build on. Now, I remember uh, six months ago, I was sitting in a, in a room with a whiteboard and one of my friends talking about how we might potentially use you know state channels for Augur. And after you get like five to 10 minutes in, it gets really complicated thinking through all the scenarios and it eventually gets just so complicated that it's really hard to actually construct them from scratch. And so what both these products are doing different is uh, they're making software developer kits. So a developer can write some code, and then it automatically does all the complicated state channel stuff under the hood. Um, and so what's cool about that is it'll enable developers to use this sort of level two scaling tech without actually having to understand all the low-level uh, intricacies. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, that's the kind of technology that I like. <laughs> um, <laughs> earlier when I asked you about this and you started explaining a little bit of it to me, you mentioned something called the bounding problem, but I didn't know what that meant. Is that related to to what these projects are working on? Oh, sorry. Yeah, that that was the routing problem. I think my mic was just iffy there. But yeah, it's the, it's the same problem of how do you kind of route the payment through the network? And it's really just a CS kind of network problem. And uh, the the team at Seller, uh, I think they just published their paper either today or yesterday, claims to have a, a theoretical theoretically optimal solution to that. So I think that's a pretty pretty exciting thing. 
And you also mentioned to me that some people are using hardware to solve this issue. How are they doing that? Yeah, so on the on the hardware uh, side of scaling, there's some really interesting stuff you can do with trusted hardware. It's so at Pantera recently, we've seen you know maybe three or four or five uh, projects that are doing stuff with trusted hardware, which we hadn't really seen that much in the space prior to now. And the idea behind trusted hardware is you have a chip or a CPU that comes kind of from the factory with something embedded in it. And the idea behind it is you can run some software and prove to someone else that you ran it and didn't modify anything or do anything malicious with it. And this is pretty powerful because what it allows you to do is uh, you can imagine, you know, say I have a really complicated Ethereum contract. Right now, every node on Ethereum has to run the thing. With trusted hardware, what you could do is say you're running this, this thing. I say, hey, Laura, I have this computation that I want you to run. Here's the file, you know, run it. And you run the computation. And then all you have to provide me back is a little signed message. And I can verify that message and ver- basically verify a signature and prove that you ran the computation in an honest way. And I can do that way cheaper than it takes to actually run the computation. Uh, so if you can imagine, this is pretty useful for scaling because it allows you to, one, make it so not everyone has to run every computation. And two, it makes the process of verifying computations really cheap. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And that sounds really interesting. And what projects are going that route? Yeah. So there's one called uh, Oasis, which is is basically using that to try to get kind of scalability increases. There's also another one called, I think it's called like Anker, uh, A-N-K-R, which is using it for, um, basically using it for, if you're familiar with Golem, uh, yeah. it's kind of s- similar to that idea. Uh, but instead of having you know a bunch of computers run the computation, you just have one run it and verify that they did it accurately uh, using trusted hardware. Oh, but then doesn't that kind of make the point of Gollum uh, moot? Because isn't the point of Gollum to run the computations in parallel so that way you can do a lot more computation in a much faster way? So the idea, yeah, that's, that's part of the idea behind Gollum, but it also has like a bit of redundancy built in. And so the idea here would be that you can get rid of the redundancy because you can basically just prove that someone ran a computation uh, in an honest way. The big kind of negative of all this stuff, though, is that you basically effectively have to trust uh, Intel. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, well, I'm sure a certain segment of the crypto population will not want to do that. All right, well, uh, one quick question before we head out here, which is EOS has been in the news a lot recently for its massive raise and also for the fact that apparently, despite all the money and, and time they've had, there are still bugs being found. Uh, I just was curious. I, I find this to be one of the most polarizing chains, and I wanted to get your take on it. Sure. So, I mean, I think on the on the bugs thing, I think it's great that, that bugs are being found. You know, I think going in, into building any sort of application in the space, whether it's a protocol layer chain or, or decentralized app, you got to assume that there's going to be bugs no matter how kind of hard you try to, to write it safely or do audits or things like that. So I think that's perfectly normal. Other than that, though, I think on EOS, it's interesting because what they're doing is they're kind of one of the first few projects that's kind of toggled the slider uh, between security and decentralization. If you look at stuff today, we have really, really permissionless stuff like Ethereum and Bitcoin, and then really, really, in my opinion, relatively centralized stuff like Ripple or Stellar. There's not a whole lot. It's kind of smack dab in the middle. 
And EOS is one of the first projects that is kind of in the middle of that spectrum. That said, though, to me, it's, it's not really that exciting because I don't think of that as like a really kind of a zero to one innovation. It's kind of a, you know, 10 to 11 sort of thing. Uh, the reason is because you're just kind of toggling these two trade-offs, but you're not really kind of creating some new paradigm shift or, or huge innovation or anything like that. And I think for EOS in particular, it's going to be useful, in my opinion, for things like, you know, decentralized social networks. If you're building decentralized Twitter, EOS is a, probably a great place to build that. However, if you're building anything really in finance or any sort of financial applications that involve markets or marketplaces, I think it's probably not as good because I think it's much because of the fact that there's only you know 21 or so nodes. I think they're very likely to see pressure from entities like governments uh, trying to kind of force them to censor transactions and, and do things like that. And so I think for really kind of this disruptive financial stuff, yeah, at the moment, platforms like Ethereum, I think are better fits for that. Yeah, well, I think this then puts you in the camp of some of the multi-coin guys who say it's basically just trade-offs. And they talked at length about this on Unchained with me a month or two ago. So I will link to that in the show notes. But otherwise, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.